Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello and welcome to uh, Top in Tech. This is the monthly podcast produced by Global Council to cover the monthly ins and outs of EU, UK, US and global tech policy. My name is Conan Darcy. I'm the Senior Practice Lead for Tech, Media and Telecoms at Global Council. This month, we're going to cover two particular topics. The first is Ukraine and the war there and the implications there are for the tech sector. How has it responded and where can we see policy going in the coming weeks and months with relation to sanctions? The second will be the EU's Data Act. It was published uh, a few weeks ago. It covers all sorts of juicy issues from the role of US cloud providers in the EU's tech system, as well as how open should data be from new industrial sources of data. I'm delighted this month to be joined uh, by two uh, stellar colleagues who will talk us through their views and where they see the sorts of things that you should be looking out for as listeners. So um, I'm delighted to be joined by Jack Keevil, who is a senior associate in the tech, media and telecoms team. Jack is based in our Brussels office and covers in-depth the EU's policy on data issues, but also more widely on issues related to the gaming gaming sector, as well as to the platform economy in areas such as the Digital Services Act. Welcome, Jack. And I'm also delighted to be joined by Miranda Lutz, who is a senior associate based in our DC office. Uh, Miranda has been on the podcast before. She's our voice in DC uh, for all things tech and trade policy uh, and keeping her ear close to the ground on what's going on on the Hill. So welcome to you both. Um, Thanks for joining me on this month's edition. Let's start with uh, Russia, Ukraine, and what's going on in the tech sector. Um, It's interesting, uh, the the dynamics have been dominated by a pretty extraordinary situation where Minister Fedorov, uh, the Ukrainian uh, minister responsible for digital transformation, has been writing directly to tech companies and CEOs approaching them on social media platforms and asking them to withdraw their services from Russia. We haven't quite seen anything like this in sort of state to corporate diplomacy, certainly not in the public arena. So Miranda, I'd like to just start with you. Could you just give listeners an overview of of these main developments and what, what, what is going on here? Sure, Conan. It is a really interesting dynamic to watch. And I think it's the first time that tech has really been drawn into the center of a geopolitical conflict um, and put at the the forefront. So uh, Minister Fedorov has been uh, very prolific in his writing, um, writing letters to a number of top uh, uh, CEOs of of U.S. tech firms and then taking pictures of those letters, posting them to Twitter, um, certainly using the bully pulpit to the fullest extent it's been used um, towards tech companies. And so we've seen a, a number of firms like Netflix, PayPal, Visa, MasterCard have stopped their services altogether in Russia, um, you know, relatively unprecedented. Uh, Google Play and Apple's App Store have not completely shut down all of their um, Russian apps, but they have stopped hosting RT and Sputnik um, over concerns that they uh, facilitate government propaganda. Apple and Samsung voluntarily 
uh, decided to stop selling smartphones in Russia, and Microsoft has stopped new sales in Russia, although they have not gone so far as to block um, all of their services like Azure and Skype. So taken together, it, it's quite hard to attribute you know, whether or not these decisions have been made solely because of Minister Fedorov's actions, um, but I think it is a really unprecedented response from the tech community. You've also seen pressure coming from the Russian side, and so for Twitter and uh, Meta, um, Russia actually took action to block Facebook and Twitter and more recently Instagram from being used by, by Russian citizens. Um, and that really gets at this very complicated uh, content moderation debate. You know, how are uh, tech companies supposed to pick sides as to what's accurate, what's inaccurate? You're, they're kind of put between a, a rock and a hard place to choose between, you know, quote, quote unquote, good and evil. Um, and you've also seen some tech firms really leaning into the conflict. So Elon Musk's Starlink sending satellites um, to Ukraine to help provide, um, you know, greater internet access. And so, you know, altogether, I think that this will continue to be, you know, at the forefront of the conflict and the pressure on these tech firms to, to pick a side will, will only increase. Yeah, it's interesting, Miranda. It, in some ways, it's not really a new debate, is it? How many times have we seen tech companies hauled in front of committees, whether in DC or in Brussels or in uh, the UK Parliament, and asked about why their policies are different in autocratic countries as opposed to how they apply their policies to people in the West. The classic one that is used of critics of, say, Twitter is that Donald Trump had his uh, account suspended, but you had others like the Taliban who were still allowed uh, to publish material. Um, obviously, the issue is more complicated than that, but that's a sort of flavour of where the debate's been to now. And this really crystallises that debate in a way which no one really anticipated. But let's go back to that then. So um, it, it's interesting, when you look at, say, financial services or energy, everything's been driven by what governments are doing and what they're telling companies and legally binding them to act in certain ways. But we're in a situation with tech companies where it seems to be that they are almost self-regulating uh, under encouragement from Ukrainian ministers. And it isn't really the US, the EU or the UK governments, at least not in a direct way, that are really leading uh, the policy environment here. I mean, as, let's see looking forward, presumably there's a chance that might change. So as the US administration reviews new avenues of sanctions, do you think that the tech sector might be one area that they look to explore? I think it's certainly on the table. Um, you know, to the point that you made earlier, a lot of the action um, taken by the tech industry has already been voluntary, and I think that's removed some of the the pressure on you know Biden um, and and other administration officials to specifically crack down um, you know on Twitter on Facebook for hosting um, you know these accounts or or apps. Um, and I think that more likely the bully pulpit will be used to force additional actions. But it's also important to remember that the U.S. has already taken some action specifically on the, the tech sector. Um, so the U.S. has imposed pretty far-reaching export controls on U.S. technology like semiconductors and telecoms devices. Um, and this includes, you know, any sort of um, technology that has been developed with American software. And there is an extraterritorial 
territorial application of that. So that means that it's not just direct exports from the U.S. that are blocked, but exports, you know, worldwide that incorporate some type of, um, you know, U.S. value add, whether that be software or hardware, um, you know, is, uh, is, is subject to export control. So there are a number of levers that the administration has already demonstrated that they're willing to pull um, specifically on the, the tech industry. When it comes to, you know, specifically sanctioning, um, you know, tech itself as a sector in the way that you've described, like, you know, energy and financial services have been um have been touched. I think it's it's a tough balance for the Biden administration because one, they're you know don't want to risk too much of a blowback against um, you know Western powers from the you know average Russian person, um, and you know second cutting off com- completely cutting off access to U.S. tech could also have negative downstream effects in the fact that you know you're basically um, removing an alternative to Chinese tech products. Um, And so you could see this situation where if the U.S. were to sanction tech in the way that you've described, you you would see even um, closer knitting together of of Russia and China in the tech sector. Um, And that would pose a geopolitical national security risk, you know, over the medium to long term to the, to the U.S. Um, and so these are, I think, are all the things that are kind of floating around in these debates that have prevented the U.S. from taking action, um, you know, on, on the tech sector. And you also think, um, you know, closing the tech sector off in Russia would have a far more drastic effect than it would, um, you know, say if we were to do something like this towards China, because the the homegrown internet and in tech industry is very much in Russia is very much reliant on on the West, and it does not have as as strong of a, a domestic industry as you know pr- President Putin and others would have liked, and we can get into um, some of the things that he's done. Um, to, to try and bolster that that domestic industry. But I think it's very challenging both from the political side and, and optics um, to actually to sanction the tech sector in the way that they've had for uh, energy and financial services. Okay, so yeah, I mean, it's always, you're, you're correct. It's not that the governments haven't done anything about tech. It's just the focus has tended to be more on, on hardware um, the more infrastructure elements of tech, it's software where the co- picture is a little bit more complicated. I take your point that I think it's not just governments, but also tech companies are worried about cutting off avenues for Russian citizens to communicate, particularly if it's going to be encouraging uh, opposition to the war that is going on at the moment. But there is the other flip side of that debate, which is stopping the Western digital infrastructure from allowing Russian state-backed or state-associated companies to operate. And we saw a a version of this debate. You mentioned China just before, but we saw that with Huawei when the Trump administration used an executive order to stop companies like Apple with its iOS system or Google Android to stop working with Huawei, which had massive ramifications for their smartphone business. Do you think that's something we could see? I mean, maybe they could potentially target certain apps uh, that use iOS or Android in Russia? Is that something you think the administration or indeed their European peers might be considering? Absolutely. I mean, just today there was, um, you know, a, a news story broke that Apple is still holding, uh, hosting apps connected to uh, Russia's uh, internet company Yandex. Um, and that was 
uh, you know, pretty heavily critical of of uh, in questioning why Apple's App Store has continued to host that. Um, you know, that said, I, I mentioned earlier that you know Apple and Google have already started to kick off some apps that are viewed are, as problematic. I think that the pressure is absolutely only going to increase. Um, I think some sort of executive order or or action from the U.S. administration is is certainly possible. Um, you know, lawmakers themselves have kind of already lined up to, to pressure Twitter and Facebook to restrict government, um, gov- Russia, government-controlled accounts um, in, in Russia. And as the disinformation campaign, you know, worsens and becomes, you know, even more important um, to the, the war in rec- Ukraine, I think that uh, it is, uh, it's possible that Biden would, um, would take this type of action. I, I don't have a, you know, a crystal ball, but I think it is certainly going to be a part of the the discussions. And to a certain extent, um, you know, there should be some restrictions already. If generally, if a Russian entity is subject to full blocking sanctions, they should not be allowed a U.S entity person business should not be allowed to offer services to that Russian entity. Um, there's certainly a, a big gray area in terms of, you know, what is offering a service? Is it allowing them to continue to host their their Twitter site uh, or their um, Twitter account? Is it, you know, just in terms of, of payments for, for goods um, and, and services? So there are a lot of other, I think, technical levers, you know, with the export controls, the entity lists, um, and uh, and sanctions enforcement that the Biden administration will be willing to, to pull. Okay, thanks, Miranda. I mean, we talked a lot about the US side of things there. So, Jack, let's bring in the European dimension. When I sort of painted this picture of sort of inaction from governments and executive bodies, uh, one one exception to what I said is uh, around how the EU and the European Commission is applying sanctions against uh, Russia Today, RT, um, which, if I'm correct, include forcing Google to delist them from search results in Europe. Given we've talked on this podcast many times about the Digital Services Act and these slightly pain conversations about what's the appropriate balance of how to regulate the internet, who says what should be allowed in or what, where does free expression play into this? I mean, this intervention seems pretty extraordinary. Um, How would this be received uh, at a time when the EU institutions are legislating for the Digital Services Act? What's going on here? So I think that uh, Russia's invasion in Ukraine has, among all the other consequences, um, it has created a very um, unprecedented sort of mainstream consensus in Europe about these questions in this particular context. I think it was very well summed up by the Justice Commissioner Vera Yorova, who called who called the the, the Commission's measures towards a RT the radical, unprecedented, and necessary. And really, there's the sense that this sort of war footing um, that European governments find themselves in now uh, calls for extraordinary measures such as this. Uh, some, as we said, some do cry censorship. Uh, typically, that comes from the far left or the far right, which and these are groups where you would find perhaps, if we can put it this way, a bit more sympathy for Moscow, if not financial links. Uh, also, uh, perhaps a tendency to blame NATO for the conflict and, and, and these kind of things. Um, but the mainstream is very is very 
remarkably united on this on, on this question. But it's also, I would say, it's, it's also in line with the general idea of treating online and offline content equally, which is the whole one of the guiding principles principles behind the Digital Services Act. Um, and in fact, on the Digital Services Act, we can expect that possibly to, to kind of evolve further. It's at a very late stage of negotiations at the moment between uh, members of the European Parliament and um, representatives of national governments. But Commissioner Breton, who's kind of leading the, the charge on the DSA, told the European Parliament's Internal Market Committee that online platforms could do more to combat disinformation. Um, and he promised more, ac- more action on disinformation as part of the DSA. But the, the details of this uh, are really yet to emerge. Uh, but really, the, the timing, um, in some ways, is very conducive to a rapid EU response because they're at this late stage. That the negotiators in the room, and they can they can take decisions. Whether that's very transparent and very, um, you know, whether there's a sufficient accountability will be an interesting question. But uh, rapid EU action is is, is here to stay. Well, it does it does raise interesting questions in the longer term about which authorities, which governments um, are censored in this way uh, and what types of actions that they undertake is sufficient to to provoke them, whether it is the, as you say, offline, online uh, consistency is the point. So sanctions on one applies to sanctions on the other. But it does seem to have wider questions about a more comprehensive, holistic approach to how we consider information coming out of autocratic regimes uh, globally. So let's uh, let's just finish off on this topic uh, with one final question to you, Miranda, because you referenced earlier this sort of beginnings of a decoupling in the tech sector between China and the West. China's better equipped to deal with such a decoupling uh, than perhaps Russia is, but that was already sort of happening. Indeed, Global Council held a conference on this in January, so it was enough of a theme for us to to warrant us doing that. But it's interesting to see. So if the, if that's already happening, Russia-Ukraine comes into it, that has a whole new element of Russia-West decoupling. What does this what does this mean for the China-West decoupling? Is this going to be accelerated or is this something different that we're we're making links together that don't really exist? No, I, I think they're all a part of the same story. So, you know, I think that the China Western decoupling around tech was very much driven by national security concerns and had at least an early focus on on hardware, on Huawei and, and tel- telecoms equipment, and has slowly started to evolve to things like social media platforms and concerns, you know, that TikTok might have access or that TikTok does have access to U.S. consumer data and that that would be um, transferred, you know, back to Beijing and potentially shared with the Chinese government. But I think that on the flip side, we've seen, you know, very much the the concern here being, and here I mean the Russia-Ukraine conflict on content moderation, disinformation, censorship. And so it's drawing in all of these other parts of this tech policy debate into this broader decoupling debate. And I think that you know, the Russia and Ukraine crisis coming on the heels of this, you know, growing antagonism towards China is really putting the globalization of the tech industry, if not on hold, actually in reverse, um, because this is co- coming from, as I mentioned, 
you know, Western companies being forced to, to pick sides, um, both in terms of their, you know, supply chains, in terms of their content moderation policies, their online safety policies. And so I think it's impossible to, to separate out these two trends because they are so intertwined. And I think that this, the decoupling debate on China made it easier for the decoupling debate between, you know, Russia and, and the West in tech to kind of accelerate. Um, and so I think that, you know, as we're looking ahead to, you know, unfortunately future um, geopolitical conflicts, I think that tech firms will continue to be, you know, as I said earlier, at the forefront of these conflicts. Um, and that's a pretty big uh shock to many tech firms that were founded on, you know, bringing communities together, connecting people, um, you know, it, it is going to, I think, be a, a bit of a seismic change going forward. And certainly, uh, Western tech companies will have to think very carefully about how they operate and if they operate at all in autocratic regimes, or under autocratic regimes. <laughs> Okay, well, I mean, that's an interesting moment for us to sort of flip over to our second discussion, because in some ways, it is a bit more complicated than just the West and China decoupling. As we know, uh, Europe, while it obviously has major concerns about Chinese tech, it has major concerns about how to operate within China, within Russia, as we've just discussed, it also has long-standing concerns about the dominance of the European tech industry by large US platforms. And we know, uh, Jack, you mentioned earlier Commissioner Breton. He is someone who's been a vocal proponent of open strategic autonomy. So let's, let's get into that concept and let's get into what is now called the European Data Act. Uh, this was published by the Commission recently, as I said earlier today. Let's start off with just a very basic question, though, Jack. Listeners could be forgiven for thinking that the EU already has a data act. You know, the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, we endlessly hear about the GDPR. So if we already have the GDPR, why do we have a data act on top of that? Well, this is the thing. The GDPR is not the only one. <laughs> There's a long list of other um, pieces of EU data legislation, which we're probably better not go into right now. Um, but the GDPR is, of course, the most famous. Um, it deals primarily with the protection and processing of personal data. That's to say information about you as, as an individual that could, in, in some circumstances, identify you. Um, the Data Act, though, is a bit different. It deals with what we might call industrial data. This is oversimplifying a little bit because the data acts, the provisions would also apply to personal data, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, so industrial data, this is data generated by things like connected devices, which can be anything from sensors and jet engines being the European Commission's favorite example, all the way down to smart kettles, um, as well as data processed and stored by cloud services. Uh, services. Uh, I said earlier, it kind of also covers personal data. Um, this is true, but then the GDPR also still applies to that. So you have to read the two in parallel. Uh, and the data act's basic aim is to make industrial data more freely available, um, obliging manufacturers to make it available to consumers. When that can be consumers in the sense of you know, individuals such as you or I, but also business consumers, um, people who've bought a, a large piece of machinery to go in the factory and that, and that kind of thing. It's meant to reduce the lock-in effects that can occur when, um, for example, 
a manufacturer would sell additional services based on exclusive access to the data set, um, or when it's just simply difficult to take your data from, from one, one product to another. So the listeners will be delighted, Jack, to know that whereas before they had the GDPR to deal with, they now have to sit down and have the GDPR and the Data Act side by side and try to work out what on earth applies to what. Um, but let's get into the, the politics of this. Look, the, the, we talk, I mentioned it earlier, open strategic autonomy. So this is about bolstering European tech. But then if I'm hearing this right, the Data Act is going to ensure that certain European industries have to share their data with other companies and sectors. So I assume some of those other companies and sectors could inevitably be non-European. So this, is this not somewhat at odds? Are they, is, is the EU saying one thing but legislating in another direction? Arguably, this drive to... Um to increase the level of competition, it's it's kind of it's quite a sort of classic liberal instinct. It's sort of opening up the market. It's creating new opportunities, um, which is unusual for something some something as French as the open strategic autonomy or you know digital sovereignty type initiative that we've that we've seen. It's not something that you typically find uh, um, associated with each other. Um, and so this idea that it increases competition, it will thereby also increase EU competitiveness, and as a result, the, the strength of the EU economy overall, um, and therefore its, it's kind of uh, autonomy and ability to make its own, own choices in the world. Um, that's perhaps a slightly simplistic way to put it, because the impacts will vary by sector. Traditional European industries, which are being digitized, will be quite unhappy at having to give up the sort of data sets that they're, that they're kind of past uh, historic in investments are now, are now providing. Um, they made these investments with legitimate expectations and they want to be able to kind of reap the rewards and fear perhaps they can't do that. Um, at the same time, there are other sectors that would be very happy to have uh, more data to sort of feed into their kind of number crunching, number crunching algorithms and things. And um, arguably in, in the cloud sector, which is a very strategically important sector, uh, the Data Act aims at chipping away the dominance of the big US providers to the advantage of European players. So I think there, that's that, that last one's a very clear example of how, in fact, yes, it would, um, it w- would increase the, sort of the, the strength of the European position. Okay, so let's go. So, so just to take that together then, the answer is a bit complicated with the European industrial data. Um, we'll have to see how it plays out in practice, but it could actually create new types of uh, technology firms in Europe that may otherwise not have developed, I suppose is the logic here. But on the second, we have this whole bundle of issues around cloud providers who we know are dominated by the big US uh, providers. So is this, Jack, essentially the EU's attempt to get around the US's Cloud Act by essentially ensuring that US cloud providers cannot be compelled to share their European data with the US government? So again, I'm afraid it's a bit complicated. Um, I think maybe is the answer. Um, so I think with, with, the, with the caveat that I'd want to uh, consult my, my legal advisors, um, the GDPR already makes it very difficult for cloud provider to comply with an order to send personal data to the US authorities. There's a limited sort of set of circumstances where it would be kind of considered, considered uh, lawful under EU law. Um, we might then think, okay, non-personal data, that must be completely different, but which in a way, yes, but in reality, non-personal data would 
almost always be mixed in with personal data in any given data set. No, no order would only encompass non-personal data. And also national laws um, in certain sectors might also play a role in preventing the kind of the this sort of export of, of, of data to, to the US authorities. Um, so in a, in a way, you could say that it's kind of plugging a bit of a gap for non-personal data and personal data in certain circumstances. Um, but that doesn't seem the main um, point of interest, because really the main point of interest in the data act when it comes to cloud services is achieving this kind of cloud portability where a customer can take um, or should find it easy to take or the, the manufacturer would have to enable may uh, make the kind of you know the, the sort of technical legal contractual measures necessary to make it easy for a customer to take the data from one service and go to a competitor. Um, this is kind of the same logic as uh, as the rest of the proposal in sort of reducing the lock-in effects and, and increasing competition overall. And what just so happens that all the big providers are American. Well, this happens a lot in uh, European tech policy. It just so happens that the targets of legislation happen to be uh, often large American providers. We've seen similarly so in uh, legislation such as the Digital Markets Act. And we know that that and the DSA and others have caused a lot of consternation in DC. Um, so Miranda, let's bring you in here. Um, do you think this will go down badly in, in Washington or has it already? And we've already seen certain consequences of not this act, but sort of national versions of it where You've seen in France, for instance, that US cloud providers are partnering with European firms in order to provide certain services. If that is the logic of where this is going, I can imagine that might uh, cause uh, some noises on the American side of the pond. Absolutely. I think that, you know, in general, from politicians of, you know, all stripes, uh, there is a uh, strong reticence to kind of cede the regulatory control over a sector that has really powered so much of the American economy over the past 20, 30 years to a, a foreign government. And so, um, you know, we've seen a bipartisan uh, group of lawmakers push back on the the DMA and and the DSA, um, and you know the argument, as you said, is a relatively simple one. It's you know why is the EU only targeting um, its uh, its hammer, so to speak, at U.S. tech firms? Um, it feels a bit unfair from the folks uh, in, in for the folks in Washington D.C. And so I think that you'll you'll hear echoes of those same debates, um, you know, on the on the Data Act, and I, I don't think that that will change. And uh, you know, U.S. companies have certainly already spoken out against the against the proposal. Um, and I think that there is a difference um, between you know the EU this happening at the EU member state level and then it happening, um, you know throughout the the broader EU there's just a different level of attention um, you know when this is a debate in Brussels versus when it's um, you know a debate in, in France um, you know on a on a more functional level um, you know this is essentially acting as a, you know data localization requirement or you, as you said a, a forced um, you know joint venture requirement for US companies and that's going to be you um, uh, you know, heavily, heavily criticized. Um, and so I think that, you know, we'll see, you know, how this debate 
plays out, um, you know, it's been relatively quiet from from lawmakers. Um, you know, given the 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 discussion that we had in the first half of this podcast, you know, everything's been focusing on on Ukraine and Russia, um, and so lawmakers, I don't think, have given the the Data Act that attention it merits. But I'm sure, you know, over the coming weeks and, and months, um, you know, as the debate in in Brussels plays out, that will that will change. Yeah, it's uh, you're right. I think uh, Russia Ukraine dominates all, uh, and it will dominate the next uh, TTC Transatlantic Trade and Tech Council meeting in May. But you can imagine there might be some interesting questions from the US side about the exact nature of this proposal. Uh, I suspect, uh, certainly in the administration, they're watching this closely, and we'll start to hear more noises on the political side uh, soon enough. It's also happening at the same time as the the privacy shield debate and so I think barring the 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 fact that you know Russia and Ukraine is just the the dominant um, force. There are there will be members of the administration that are taking a very close look at at this issue, um, and and like you said, I'm sure it will come up in the in the TTC. Well, Jack, why don't you tell us and tell us uh, the people who are going to sit down at the next TTC meeting in May? Do they need to worry about this? Because look, what where are we? A couple of years from the next European elections, we know that it's. I mean, you, you really want something voted on in sort of February time, ideally sort of January, uh, maybe even December or before a European election. So actually, we're probably slightly less than two years away uh, for this agreement uh, to get in before the next European elections. Do you think it's possible? We know there's going to be lots of advocacy here from in different interest groups who you've already highlighted. So uh, will it become law before the next election? So the kind of rule of thumb that you'd apply to this sort of thing is that from the moment the European Commission publishes a proposal to the adoption, it takes somewhere in the range typically of sort of 12 to 18 months. This is what we see with both the Digital Services Act, Digital Markets Act comfortably in that range at the moment, looking very likely to be adopted then. Um, But then you also see some examples like the e-privacy regulation, which was proposed in 2017 and is still sort of languishing more or less in intensive care uh, in the sort of halls of the halls of the council. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly possible uh, to get it passed in that time. It's quite, it's even, even quite comfortable having the best part of almost uh, what two years still to, um, to, to get it through. But if stakeholders are kind of finding it difficult to water down some of the some of the more contentious parts, they might start trying to get. They might see an incentive to start getting a bit more, bit more creative, and devising arguments as to why you know the work should be delayed. Which and start convincing MEPs who also get a bit creative and finding ways to delay its passage through Parliament, for example, or or, or the same in in the council. Um, and basically, with the, the aim, the aim being to stall it for just a few months until until it's uh, no longer adoptable. Um, and I think that would be quite a fun game to watch as a relatively non-interested uh, observer. So, to put that together, then Jack, we there's plenty of time to get it done, provided that there is the mutual political will between MEPs and member states to achieve that. It just depends. I suppose e-privacy is an interesting example. The problem there is that the Council and the European Parliament have very strong opposing opinions on a couple of particular issues. 
we'll see if that develops here. I'm not quite sure uh, that there isn't quite that same way. Um, there isn't, uh, I don't think necessarily that same privacy versus security, at least in a European sense, uh, that, that, that uh, debate uh, to happen, but we shall see. Um, so I think that's probably the point at which we're, we're going to conclude uh, for now. There's lots more going on. Uh, we'll no doubt return to the online safety bill that was published uh, in the UK at the end of last week. That's probably one we'll cover on the next uh, podcast. And no doubt lots will happen in the tech sector regarding Russia, Ukraine, uh, before we join the call in a month's time. So as always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to the trends that we've discussed today, whether that's the impact of the Russia-Ukraine conflict on the tech sector or the EU Data Act and its impact on, say, the cloud sector, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the contact details for Miranda and Jack and the rest of our tech, media, and telecoms team on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Look forward to seeing you on the podcast next month. Bye-bye. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.